Queen's reign in many ways represents the process, post-war process, however gradual, of the UK adapting to becoming a normal country, not being a powerful empire, not having the world's biggest economy and so forth. That took a long time. And in the United States, I think there is no reason to believe that on a long enough time horizon, the United States will also become a more normal, ordinary country uh, that has to deal multilaterally on more or less the same terms as other large uh, economies in the world. I do believe that implies a long term uh, underperformance of U.S. assets versus the rest of the world. Hi, I'm James Early, and welcome to Across the Pond with me and John Butler. Is the U.S. becoming the next U.K.? And is the U.K. becoming the next emerging market? With the passing of Queen Elizabeth, people are looking back at the, the past you know, 80 or so years, the relative decline of the U.K.'s economic position and the relative ascendancy of the U.S.'s. But nothing lasts forever, whether that's good or bad. What does that mean for these countries? And what does that mean for investors? John and I are going to talk about that today. So, John, Thank you very much for, for being here. And this is not an interview show. We're going to clarify that. We're going to go back and forth because I think John knows a lot more about this stuff than I do. And I'm just kind of keeping up with him. So, John, welcome. And, and thanks for joining us here. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, pleasure to be here and uh, to kick off this new concept uh, across the pond where we attempt to inform North American investors about developments in the UK and Europe and British and European investors about developments in North America. They're both equally relevant. And a quick historical anecdote, you may recall uh, that as World War II was breaking out uh, and Queen Elizabeth was not yet queen, just a young lady, uh, there were two very famous journalists who crossed the pond in opposite directions in order to cover those critical historical developments for those respective audiences. Alastair Cook, legendary UK journalist and broadcaster, moved to the United States, where he sent back reports regarding the Americans' opinions and thinking about what was unfolding in Europe. Of course, with the uh, reassurance uh, that perhaps at some point the United States would come to Britain's aid. On the other hand, Edward R. Murrow, legendary American journalist and broadcaster, moved over to London to cover what became the London Blitz, the repeated bombings of the German Luftwaffe on London and other British cities. Uh, both of them were sending important messages across the pond. And while I'm not sure we can quite aspire to the historical importance of what was happening back then, I nevertheless believe it's just as relevant today to try and get the word across the pond so that investors on either side can make better informed decisions. So Alistair and Edward over Zoom, in other words, uh, or we'll do our best to approximate that. And I agree with you. It's, 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 these countries are so close, so related, but, but often uh, know so little about each other, at least in an investing sense. So John, you lived in the UK for, for quite a long time, despite your, your slight Canadian accent. Uh, let me ask you first, I mean, if I uh, respond however you, you want to this, but we're looking now at, at a mini budget that, that did not go as, you know, it, it fell flat as a pancake, basically. And the IMF is now getting involved to comment. And the, usually the IMF gets involved with developing markets when they do something, when they screw up really badly. Uh, we got people saying this is the beginning of things getting a lot worse. People saying it's not a big deal. How are you interpreting? 
Well, look, this budget did come as as a surprise to many because it's an extremely fiscally stimulatory budget, yet one that is occurring at a time when inflation is already running at near double digits and following a huge run up in the UK's total debt burden, uh, in part due to COVID uh, measures most recently. But really, it's a trend that's been in place for a long time. Total economy debt to national income in the UK is now over 100 percent. And so to be looking to run uh, still, you know, very, very persistent and high fiscal deficits uh, from this point forward does look questionable. And I'm not surprised that the IMF has weighed in with its opinion here. And, and if somebody's new to this, the, the criticism you know, is borrowing, borrowing from Peter to, to, to pay Paul in the sense of taking on more debt to help uh, reduce energy prices, which kind of seems like a, and it was done by a conservative government. But it, in, in the other way of looking at it, it kind of seems like a labor, like a more uh, left-wing thing to do as well. So it's it's kind of a mixed message thing. Anyhow. It is. It is a mixed message. And it's it's therefore getting pushed back both from conservatives <laughs> and from labor, uh, not only the IMF. And, and look, there's really, when, when you look at it, it, it's basically a series of unfunded tax cuts. There's nothing conservative about unfunded tax cuts. Now, if tax cuts are offset with, are funded with spending cuts, absolutely, that could be seen as a conservative budget. And indeed, that's what Margaret Thatcher was attempting to do with some success throughout uh, her tenure as prime minister. Uh, but this is nothing uh, of that ilk at all. There's nothing Thatcherite about this budget package, at least not as it stands now. Now, the skeptic in me would say that because a general election is not that far away now, um, the new government is giving the electorate the good news first, tax cuts, and saving the slightly less good news, perhaps for some, after the election, which are the corresponding spending cuts, perhaps on the NHS, perhaps on other sacred government programs, uh, saving that for after the next election. So maybe there's a little element of electioneering going on here. Politicians know their craft, if nothing else. And, and for, for someone watching this in the U.S., uh, the, the new prime minister replaced Boris Johnson. So she is leader of England, but, but not by a popular vote. And, you know, eventually things will, will come around. But, but, you know, politicians always like to doctor things up. The other, the other half of the coin here, John, is the Bank of England, which is now saying it may have to jack up rates you know, e- even more to to quell inflation, which is, I guess, what central banks do with, when countries have inflation. But uh, you know, if you have uh, you know reduced spending, you have higher higher uh, interest rates. It's not an economic formula for a it's, good time. It's really a mess for the Bank of England. And, and again, what, what Americans sometimes fail to appreciate is that notwithstanding certain similarities between the U.S. and the U.K. economies, the fact is the U.K. is a much smaller and much more open economy. That is, the proportion of imports and exports is much greater than in the United States. And what that means is that changes in the foreign exchange rate, the sterling foreign exchange rate, can have a huge and very quick impact on the inflation outlook. And the Bank of England, of course, was already now very behind the curve with inflation nearing 10% just as they were beginning to raise interest rates. And now sterling has got whacked 
in the foreign exchange markets as a result of the reaction to this mini budget. Now, that really gets the bank spooked. I mean, the bank has a model. They'll say it's a sophisticated model. I actually think it's probably less sophisticated than they want us to believe. But it's a simple model which projects forward the impact of inflation of movements in the sterling exchange rate. And they're probably looking at that model's results right now and absolutely panicking. And I suspect there might not have been great communication here between the bank and the government. That is, you know, the bank would have wanted to be able to do more on its own to shore up sterling and to reassure the financial markets that they're not going to just let inflation out of control when all of a sudden, boom, comes this very stimulatory expansionary budget. So uh, the, the bank, I mean, look, we're, we're going to see. Yeah, look how with their pants down, what, basically. Like, what, what the heck We're going to see just how independent they really are yeah. uh, over the next months, in my opinion. And, and you say that because ostensibly the bank is technically independent from the government, sort of like how the Federal Reserve in the U.S. is owned by its member banks. But like, it's kind of sort of, I mean, it's still very politically influenced. Yeah. It's a gray area. It's it, it, it's a gray area. Milton Friedman would famously say, of course, central banks should be independent. But in practice, you really find out whether they're independent when you do get into some sort of showdown between the central bank and the government. And he famously said this is later in life when he'd become a bit more skeptical. Um, he said when there is a severe showdown, the government, if it presses the issue, will always win. That's Milton Friedman. So I, I think, sadly, or not sadly, depending on how you choose to look at these things, I think we're going to find out one way or another soon uh, the situation in the UK. I think so, too. And and let's roll back the clock a little bit, John. So or let's roll back a lot to to, you know, whether we can start in the, the 1920s when, when Queen Elizabeth, not queen at that time, but when Queen Elizabeth was born or, you know, the 1940s, you know, we, 1944 was essentially when the world switched to the dollar as a reserve currency status, uh, wherever you want to. But how did the UK get here? It was it was a dominant company. You know, the, the sun didn't set on the British Empire. Uh, it was it was a hotbed of innovation. Uh, now it's not. Now, if I you know, if I were a young person, I'm in London right now. But if I if I had a great idea for some hot new business, I would probably move to Silicon Valley and, and try to raise capital there and try to hire my team there. Um, maybe everybody doesn't think that way, but I think I think a lot of people do. Uh, was it the loss, in your view, was it the loss of the, the UK's reserve currency status that started this kind of devaluationary, um, you know, exodus from, from the country or something else? Well, look, I, I believe that Sterling's loss of reserve status was more effect than cause. But Yes, let's go back. I'll try to keep this as brief as I can, but I am an economic historian by academic background. And so if you want to trace the relative decline of the UK, you even have to go back to before Queen Elizabeth was born. You have to go back into the 19th century. Now, I mean, it wasn't evident to anyone, and indeed economic data at the time was so scatty and not robust, nobody would have really seen it happening at the time. But already in the late 19th century, it was clear, or it's clear in retrospect, that the United States and Germany in particular were vastly outperforming the British economy and were rapidly, rapidly on their way to surpassing it. Some historians believe the United States already did by around 1880, 1890 or so. 
and that Germany was on course to do so in there, as it were. And, and so this relative decline had already set in in the late 19th century. Then, of course, the First World War breaks out, you know, arguably the greatest tragedy to ever befall Western civilization and totally shatters the continental economy as well as the UK economy. The US is relatively unscathed. Then in the interwar years, Queen Elizabeth is born. But this is when you start to see the UK's decline become more apparent. And while sterling is still the dominant reserve currency, it is now losing market share materially to the US dollar. Okay. And so the process has begun. Of course, as we know, World War II then breaks out a few years later. And it's in the aftermath of World War II that Britain finally hopes, okay, the wars are over with, we've got peace now, we can go back to prosperity. But when you look at what happens now, sterling as a currency never comes back. And that's because the UK as a country never comes back from what is now in retrospect, a very long-term economic decline. So the world wars almost disguised it. They almost disguised what was beginning to happen anyway. Then, of course, they probably accelerate it massively because Britain ends up hugely indebted uh, after the Second World War. And so the Bretton Woods Conference, which was set up to structure the international monetary system for the post-world world, um, when that conference was held, it was agreed that when they got back to uh, uh, fixing exchange rates, sterling dollar would be roughly four to one. That is $4 per sterling. When Bretton Woods finally got properly operational in the 50s, that had declined. Only about $2.8 were necessary for sterling exchange. And so that's where Bretton Woods was set. And it remained there until the 1960s, when Britain had to devalue again, and then we have seen a couple of subsequent large devaluations thereafter, and of course, during this period of free-floating exchange rates that we've been living in now for several decades, the sterling has trended lower on trend. And now we're approaching parity. So think about that. Think about that. From four to one over the course of a couple of generations, that is a tremendous relative decline. Now, now, on the other side, you might say, ah, but doesn't that mean that the that maybe because of easier monetary conditions or something that the UK, uh, you know, a stock market's done better, the UK housing market has done better or something else to offset it? No. And in fact, what you also see happen during this period, the equity risk premium on UK shares relative to their US counterparts rises. The UK comes to be seen as a just a riskier jurisdiction or a structurally less profitable jurisdiction for investors than the United States. That is also part of this long-term trend. So you've lost on the currency and you've lost on relative stock market valuations, which are now at historic extremes for that matter. The UK looks extremely cheap on paper. If you just list your various ratios, price earnings, EV to EBITDA, you know, pick your favorite valuation metric and cross out the country at the top of the sheet, you'll think, my God, I mean, don't tell me these two economies are similar. They're, they're priced completely differently. And yet that's what we have today. Amazing. And, and there's a virtual or a, a vicious cycle to a lot of this. And it, it plays out over decades. But if you look at the 
the companies, the constituents of, of the UK stock indexes. You know, there are these, you know, tried and true. They are solid, tangible industrial companies, which I like as, as, as a value investor, but they're not growth companies. You know, they're not the companies that are going to dominate, you know, the next hundred years. No, I, I agree they're not. And yet what you point out is important for the current environment. I personally believe that given the state of the world, and you know, we can go into this maybe in another episode, but I believe, in fact, investors should be focused on value-based investment approaches currently. And the UK stock market is a place for rich pickings if you're looking for basic industrial multinational value. And I stress multinational. Buying UK shares is actually buying the world. Because you have so many multinationals who source a disproportionate share of their revenues outside the UK. So, you know, you're investing in global natural resources, you're investing in global machinery and industry and whatnot. And and so I believe that given the relative um, dearness of the U.S. stock market here and the relative value of the U.K., I believe that North American investors should be taking a very serious look at the U.K., high dividends low valuations. It looks defensive, notwithstanding the issues the UK currently faces at home. I, I agree with that. You know, I, I, I love, you know, I've, most of my investing career has been based on value, finding value stocks and it's worked for me personally. I've been able to beat the market with, with value stocks, with, with basically lower risk stocks. And I believe we've, we've just come from 12 years of favoring, I think what you like to call intangible assets. Uh, you know, the companies that didn't, you know, aren't, make, aren't doing bread and butter, uh, bricks and mortar stuff. And, and often the profits are coming far into the future. And, and that, those days are over. I, I think we're in a tangible market now. And the UK has a lot of that. And they also have a lot of financial stuff for someone who's, who, who's new to the UK. And these days, it's either easier than ever to buy international stocks through different brokers. So you almost don't have an excuse uh, <laughs> if, if you really want to invest in the UK. But why don't we go back across the pond, literally or, or figuratively, I should say, to the US. I think another trend, John, people are talking about now is, all right, you know, we've seen what's happening to the UK and you know, maybe it's not an emerging market. Obviously, it's not an emerging market and probably not going to get there, but it's not looking good right now. The US seems to be challenged by by the eurozone, uh, by China, uh, by I don't know who else, but it, people look. You, know, you look at headlines: the dollar dominance is in decline. Um, you know, Chinese stock market is now you know number number three, number two, something like that. Uh, these headlines seem to point to a decline, and and I've heard it said that the average empire lasts 250 years, and and that the U.S. would would reach its 250th birthday in 2026. Although that's kind of misleading math because the, the U.S. empire didn't really start at the beginning, at the, you know, maybe the 20th century or so. Um, so we're 100 and something years in, not 250. And there's no reason we have to obey the average. But the question I'm getting at, the point I'm getting at is, is the U.S. really in decline? And I'll, I'll offer my opinion first, which is I thought it was. I thought it was. I thought the headlines were right because you read about, you know, especially Asia, the rise of China. And I did business in China for 10 years. So I know a lot about the rise of China. But when I actually started to dig up some data, I found that I think, you know, 90, I'm looking right on 90% of, of uh, transactions are still uh, foreign currency trading involves the dollar on one side of the transaction. I'm reading this. Um, I think that uh, the UK 
share of reserves is still 62%. And that chart has gone up and down over the years. And if you want to commit chart crime, if you're looking to, to do some chart crime, uh, reserve currency status is, is a, you'll have a field day because there are periods where it's really dipped down, like during the high inflation, uh, kind of like 1990, 1991, uh, the U.S. was down to uh, just over 45% terms of reserves, then it went back up and then started to trickle down again. So it is relatively going down a little bit, but it's still pretty high. Uh, U.S. share of total stock market has also, total world stock market has also gone up and down over the years, but the past, uh, really past 10 years or 12 years since the great financial crisis, it has been going up. And, and the way, the summary I'd say is the U.S. may indeed be a drunk driver, but it is the least drunk driver on the road. Meaning, you know, when everyone else is, is, is facing the same problems, people still want that, that, that safety net and nobody else comes close right now. So now I, I fully look, I fully agree with that. And, and there have been people, including me, uh, who have been uh, pointing out the risks to the uh, to U.S. reserve status longer term and the possibility that the U.S. Uh, economic uh, power and influence around the world uh, is going to be in decline. And, you know. On the one hand, yes, those things may be happening, but they're happening at a snail's pace. And I'm not sure that they are relevant on a typical investor's time horizon. And think of it this way also. Had those world wars not happened in the first half of the 20th century, Britain's decline would almost certainly have been far, far slower than it actually was. And who knows? Sterling might not have lost reserve status until the 40s or 50s or who knows how much longer it would have taken uh, instead of already in the in happening in the 20s. So anyway, uh, look, the U.S., as you say, uh, is maybe the least drunk drunk driver or perhaps is simply in the biggest car with the biggest airbags. And so if everyone does crash, you know, the U.S. is more able to walk away from it. Uh, so regardless of how you choose to look at it, that said, investing is about capturing trends, however gentle, as long as you find something that, that is relatively overpriced, you want to lighten up on it. And as long as you find something that's relatively underpriced, you want to over, you know, you want to overinvest there. And so I believe that if you look at where we are, uh, the U.S. deserves, deserves to trade at a more expensive valuation than the U.K. and much of Europe. But as expensive as it now is, in currency-adjusted terms, in valuation-adjusted terms, that I'm not so sure about. The Queen's reign, to go back to where we started this discussion, the Queen's reign in many ways represents the process, post-war process, however gradual, of the UK adapting to becoming a normal country not being a powerful empire, not having the world's biggest economy and so forth. That took a long time. And in the United States, I think there is no reason to believe that on a long enough time horizon, the United States will also become a more normal, ordinary country uh, that has to deal multilaterally on more or less the same terms as other large uh, economies in the world. I do believe that implies a long-term uh, underperformance of U.S. assets versus the rest of the world, but that could play out over a very long time horizon. So be selective, be clever, be opportunistic, but have this theme on your radar screen is my recommendation. That makes sense. And, uh, I would underscore it's a long-term theme and 
during periods of crisis, it will become less true during periods of of prosperity, I think it becomes more true. If you look at the great financial crisis of 2008, 2009, people said, oh my gosh, look at how much money the U.S. is pumping in, you know, to the, the system to, to, to prop things back up. That's going to destroy the U.S. dollar, blah, blah, blah. Everybody was, was doing it. Completely wrong. Yeah, completely wrong. Everybody was doing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, when, when the U.S. catches a cold, everybody sneezes, right? And that's, you know, for better or for worse, there's that feedback loop. So in, in times of crisis, I think the U.S. is still relatively stronger and that relative strength will, will come to the fore. Um, in, in times of prosperity, I think we're not going to be as fast, or we as an American citizen, we are not going to be as fast of a runner as as, as much of Asia, for example, um, and, and maybe some of Europe and, and probably a lot of Latin America. Uh, but, you know, you also see with, with the U.S. dollar strengthening, that's putting those countries in, I mean, emerging markets. And I want to I make money in emerging markets so badly. You know, I've got these emerging markets funds here for myself, for my son's college savings. Uh, but this just haven't played out. They haven't played out. And, and, and one of the reasons is the strength of the U.S. dollar. A lot of these countries, um, you know, they may sell commodities in dollars, which is good. But they've also had a lot of dollar-denominated debt, which, which is bad. And, and that's been handicapping them. And the fact that the dollar is so dominant is kind of a ceiling on all those. But, you know, eventually, eventually they'll have their day. But uh, people have been saying that for 20, 30 years and it hasn't quite happened yet. It hasn't. And in fact, if you take a look at long term charts of emerging market assets, what you find is that the performance has come through the bonds, not the stock markets. It's really come primarily through the bonds. And as you say, the bonds are dollar denominated and they pay very healthy uh, you know, coupons vis-a-vis uh, -vis what's available, high quality in the U.S. So if you've been willing to take that risk, you've done rather well for yourself. Whereas the stock markets, not so much, and with, with exceptions, but less so. So if we were to sum things up, it sounds like you like emerging market bonds or you have liked them historically. Uh, I'm making a historical observation. I'm not, I'm not recommending that right now. And indeed, be very, very careful with, mo with lots of emerging markets right now, because some of them are running uh, very large uh, trade deficits and are very reliant on external financing. And the fact is, when global liquidity screws tighten, which they naturally do when major central banks are raising interest rates, you know, that's when some of these emerging markets may get into trouble. So I would actually be very cautious right now. I'm just pointing out the way things have, ha have happened uh, over the past couple of decades. And as someone who has, has lived in an emerging market for, for a while once, there's, it's hard for people in developed countries to understand how much corruption there is in these places and how long. It's not just an issue of, oh, these people, you know, it's a poor country now, but all the, you know, they only have, the only where they have to go is up, right? No, there's a lot of corruption and, and these, it's very systemic and it's, it's harder than you might think for these countries to really climb up that ladder, which is sad, but it's, it's reality. Uh, but back on, on developed markets, it sounds like over the next five years, if I asked you, John, between S&P 500 and FTSE 100, an index fund in each, you would put your money on the FTSE? I would. I would. I believe a lot of bad news is priced in. Uh, notwithstanding this mini budget uh, in the UK, there were actually some uh, good uh, developments as part of a general set of uh, policies that have changed recently, including a much greater willingness to try and expand the development of uh, new North Sea oil fields 
and also shale gas fracking. And would you believe there's even a discussion beginning now that maybe the UK should consider bringing some coal generation capacity back online. Now, if that seems a bit archaic, I've looked into this. And actually, it's interesting. First of all, the UK has enormous available accessible coal reserves. They are high quality anthracite coal reserves. And get this, these some of these coal reserves. Yeah, there's nice the good stuff. If someone's not familiar, it's the good yeah, stuff. It's the good stuff. It's the good, first Pennsylvania of all, it's the good has stuff. a lot of that too. Yeah. It has a similar energy density to diesel fuel, if you can believe it. Now, it's less usable in, in machinery uh, that has to move. So for transport, it's not going to help much. But for power generation, it's actually very energy dense and useful. Now, the traditional concerns of coal, of course, are, oh, it's going to give off lots of sulfur dioxide and these things. Um, but modern coal scrubbing technology is economic. You can operate clean coal, relatively clean anthracite coal plants and get the sulfur out. Now, of course, there's carbon that's going to go uh, and you can't do anything about the CO2. You can't, it's too expensive to sequester the CO2. So the CO2 lobby is not going to want to go down this road. Uh, but those who are less concerned about the UK's carbon emissions uh, are increasingly probably turning to support this. Um, and to put it in perspective, the UK emits roughly 1% uh, of the world's carbon emissions. So the idea that UK policy on coal power generation is going to impact global CO2 levels one way or the other is is pretty is pretty ridiculous, to be honest. Yeah, one one. Silver lining, if there is one of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, is it woke the world up to the fact that, hey, we need energy and renewables as much as we we like them. We love them. Uh, they're not there yet. You know, they're just they just no. can't uh, can't supply as much as we expected. So I'm, I'm delighted to see the, the focus on nuclear. But that's that's a long lead time thing. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And so it's not just the UK, as you point out, there are also other countries in Europe who have access to reasonably high quality coal. Shale fields uh, around uh, Bulgaria, Romania, uh, the Baltic Sea, there are large shale basins. And this is now a proven technology, as we know. So if Europe does decide that they're going to need to rely on fossil fuels for another few decades to try and manage some sort of more permanent and a sustainable and economical uh, energy transition that actually works and doesn't chronically overpromise and underdeliver the way solar and wind have pretty universally done, they have that option. And if I were an American investor with knowledge of the global oil and gas uh, industry, in particular, servicing the servicing industry, which provides the equipment, the engineering, and the know-how to get these projects done, I would be all over that as an investment thing. I think those are wise words. And Ironically, a new clean coal plant is way, way better. A lot of the coal plants that are running in the world are ancient because nobody's want to touch. It's toxic. It's radio, not literally radioactive. I shouldn't use that word, but they are repulsive to to people. Uh, and that's kept you know capital. That's kept new plants from coming up. But but it's a lot. The newer plants are a lot better. So I think you're right, John. Uh, regardless of someone's political views. We are not there yet, and we need to do something, or at least those in the UK need to do something. And I think that investment investment thesis has teeth. Um, wise words is always uh, informative to me, and hopefully to those watching at home. 
Uh, John, I don't know if you've got any parting words. I think I'd love to hear what people think in the comments below this video. Uh, if that's an option where you're watching it, depending on format, uh, we want to make you guys happy as an audience. So uh, let us know what questions you have, what you'd like to know about things across the pond. I think this is the arguably U.S. and U.K. have one of the strongest alliances in the world. And that's something that is not just political, but but investors can use to their advantage. And if the U.K., as as you're saying, John, is going to outperform over the next five years, I think American investors need to wake up to that. Oh, absolutely. Look, it works both ways across the pond. There's a lot that the UK and Europe can learn from the US. I mean, we just discussed you know, shale gas fracking, for example. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of opportunity uh, for North American investors to look at on this side of the pond uh, when it comes from that, uh, from the investor's point of view. So I look forward to developing this across the pond theme. I think we're going to have an awful lot to talk about, but by all means, I would love to see uh, some viewer interest uh, and some questions uh, put to us that will help us uh, develop some 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 new ideas within that theme. Uh, and um, and I look forward to participating uh, going forward. Sounds great, as do I. And thanks to you guys for watching at home.